We're going to be in Revelation chapter 14 today, so if you'd like to find that in your scriptures, of course, Revelation is the last book of the Bible, so they're the very, very end, and right before you get to the back cover, stop, and you're in Revelation. Revelation chapter 14 will be at today, and that will be home base for our message. We're going to be looking at other passages as well, but home base will be Revelation chapter 14. And as we have developed over the past many weeks now, we've seen just right from the opening sentence of the book of Revelation that the book of Revelation is not revealing terrible, horrible, awful beasts and horrors. It's revealing Jesus Christ. In fact, it's called the revelation of Jesus Christ, of course. And the way that Christ reveals things is he's showing us, as he tells us in chapter 1, things which are and which must shortly take place. So it's a book starting in the time of John and outlining the future from his perspective all the way till Jesus comes again. So basically, the book of Revelation reveals Jesus Christ, and it spans history from Christ's first coming to Christ's second coming. Okay? This is what the book of Revelation is all about. Now, as we get to chapter 14, if you were to just isolate chapter 14, pull it out of context, and start to study it, you would have a very difficult time doing that. In fact, you have a difficult time if you were to do that same thing with the entire book of Revelation, as Revelation presumes that you've read all the things that come before it in the Bible that precedes it. Of course, it's number 66 out of 66 books, so there's 65 other books to get through first before you get to Revelation. And there's many references to those previous books in the book of Revelation. But here, by the time we get to Revelation chapter 14, context has been established in our previous studies. For basic overview purposes, you can say that the first Nine or so chapters of Revelation give a sweeping, broad overview of the history from the time of Jesus' first coming to the time of his second coming, using symbolic language like, say, the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets. It outlines this chronology of history from the time of Jesus' first coming to the time of his second coming. Now, in Revelation chapter 11... It gives us the history of the Bible, symbolically referred to as his two witnesses, the Old and New Testaments, the two witnesses, particularly during a very difficult time of this 2,000-year span of history, a particular time referred to symbolically as either 1,260 days, time, times, and half a time, or 42 months. which All of them are the same time period. It represents 1,260 literal years beginning in 538 A.D. and ending in 1798 A.D. During that particular time, a system uh, was in place that was persecuting God's true church, his true messengers, his true people, and Revelation 11 refers to that. Revelation 12 refers to that same period of time again, demonstrating how God's people on the earth, his church, are persecuted over the course of history, particularly during that 1,260-year time. That time frame is mentioned again, Revelation 11 and Revelation 12. Then as you go into Revelation 13, surprise, surprise, you find that same time period mentioned again. There's two beasts, one that comes out of the sea, one that comes out of the earth, and during the time of the rule of the beast from the sea, this antichrist power, it rules and persecutes the people of God for 1,260 years, literal years. But after that time, it receives this system that had persecuted God's people, itself receives a deadly wound, and then another beast rises up from a different place, 
after that persecuting time, it comes out of the earth, which has for all this time had been helpful to the woman, to the church. It has lamb-like horns, which of course represents something Christ-like in its nature. It emerges from the earth, but it speaks like the dragon. Okay? So it's going to work on behalf of the first beast, the sea beast, and cause people to worship that first beast. Now, as we saw in our previous message, that is none other than the United States of America arising exactly at the right time and the right place as the Bible prophecies had foretold. Now we come to Revelation 14. And again, we review. Revelation 11, 12, and 13 had all looked at this 1,260 years, ending in 1798. And now we're moving on what happens after that and just before Jesus comes. Which, if you think about it, Jesus has not come yet. Amen? Okay. We don't have to have a hearty amen left. That's okay. But it is past 1798. We find ourselves living right here in the time period that Revelation 14 is going to be expanding on. Okay? This message that we're going to be studying today and for the next several weeks found right here in Revelation 14 is particularly relevant to our place and our time in Earth's history. It was written for our admonition on whom the ends of the world have come. So before we study this message, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us Jesus and for, through Jesus, giving us a glimpse of events soon to come. In fact, Lord, we're standing in the time of momentous events even happening right now all around us, and so we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to teach us the things we need to know. But Lord, more than just a mere head knowledge of these Bible truths, Lord, help our hearts to be changed, to become more like Jesus every day, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1. Now again, Revelation 11, the the messengers of God, his, his Bible testimony, was persecuted for 1,260 years. During Revelation chapter 12, the church was persecuted 1,260 years. Revelation 13, there's a persecution for 1,260 years. For the last three chapters leading up to Revelation 14, it has been kind of the only message to the people of God is basically hang on, grit your teeth, and get through it. Endure. Have patience. Hang on. But now in Revelation 14... Just before Christ's coming, he raises up his response to all the shenanigans that Satan has been doing in the previous centuries. Okay? I'll give you, by the way, before we dive into this, a very brief overview of the book, the structure of Revelation 14. Revelation chapter 14 is broken down basically into three parts. The first five verses outline what we're going to be calling the three angels' messengers, the people who give the messages that follow. Okay? They're the people of God, and we're going to study those here just in a second. Then there's the actual messages that they give, called the three angels' messages. Then towards the end, we see a picture. The chapter closes with a picture of Christ's return and the harvest of the earth, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. But basically, Revelation 14 is broken down into those three parts. It describes the people of God and the messengers. Then it gives us the message that they proclaim. And then finally, we see the coming of Jesus. This is the time frame that we're dealing with. 
just before the coming of Jesus and after the persecution that had been ascribed in the previous three chapters. Okay, Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1. Let's identify these people that God is highlighting at this very close of earth's history. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. So he's been seeing all these really negative things, and all of a sudden he looks up and he sees a lamb, and that's lamb with a capital L. And of course, this is symbolic language. He's not actually seeing just a run-of-the-mill, fuzzy, little woolly lamb. This is a lamb representing whom? Jesus Christ. And of course, that's what the whole book is about, to reveal Jesus Christ. He looks up and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, this is loaded with symbolic language here. You see the 144,000, and if you had just read, read the chapters leading up to Revelation chapter 14, that number 144,000 would stick out in your mind. You'd say, aha, I've seen that before. We've seen it inside the book of Revelation. Leave your finger in Revelation 14 and go back just a few chapters to Revelation chapter 7. This is not the first time that we've seen this particular group of people known as the 144,000. We saw them earlier in Revelation chapter 7. And for those of you who have been with us for each of these series, you remember that those first chapters of Revelation gave a repeated sequence of sevens, seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets. And this little pause for Revelation chapter 7 is right in between the sixth and the seventh of those entities, right? So just before Jesus comes, it gives a little prelude, a little uh, a foretaste of this group of people that the Lord is going to work through in these last days of verse history. And it describes them starting with verse 1 of Revelation 7. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, be, uh, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. So you get the picture that there's bracing for some great storm that's about to break. The angels are holding it back. Then we read, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having what? The seal of the living God. So this one has in his hand the seal of the living God while everything is about to bust loose. He's like, wait, 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 wait. Something has to happen first. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Verse 3 saying, do not harm the earth and the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God, where? On their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So this picture of a group of people represented by the number 144,000 has already been described in the book of Revelation. Just prior to Jesus coming, there would be this group of faithful people who would receive not the mark of the beast, but instead the seal of God. They would be identified as God's people at this time in earth's history. So when we go back to Revelation 14... And we open the chapter with the words, Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. That should not be surprising. We've seen that already described as occurring just before Jesus' coming. Okay? Now, of course, interestingly enough, 
Revelation chapter 13 closed with the whole world being forced or deceived into receiving the mark of the beast, yes? But here in Revelation chapter 14, apparently there's this group of people who don't take the mark of the beast, but instead they receive the seal of God. Notice that everything in Revelation chapter 14 is God's response to Satan's activities described in Revelation 13 that preceded it. Okay? Revelation 13 He's trying to make the whole world worship this beast and was going to give everybody the mark of the beast. But in Revelation 14, there's this group who instead have the seal of God, which is their father's name, his character written on their foreheads. They're like Jesus instead of being like his enemy. Verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the living creatures and the elders, And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. So apparently these are people from the earth who were redeemed, and this is looking ahead to their time of redemption, and they sing a song that no one else can learn because they've gone through an experience no one else could taste, no one else could go through. Theirs is unique in all history. They are living at this time, at this place, with this message, with the seal of God standing up against that enemy in the whole world with the mark of the beast. And there are these few people with the seal of God. And when they're redeemed, they'll sing a song that nobody else can learn. Some experiences you just have to go through on your own, and they can't compare to anyone else's. This is what they have. It goes on to describe in verse 4, These are the ones who not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now again, this is all full of symbolic language. And you'll recall that there are two great women mentioned in the book of Revelation, the pure woman that represents the uh, faithful church, and there's the adulterous woman, which we're going to see later on in Revelation chapter 17, who defiles the earth and commits fornication with the kings of the earth. But these people have not allied themselves with this individual. They've kept themselves pure. They have not bent the knee. They have not taken the pledge. They have not received the mark. These are those who have not defiled with women, for they are virgins. And I love this statement. Perhaps no more sublime description of a Christian could ever be written than this sentence right here. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Isn't that simple? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that powerful? The thing that makes them so different compared to everybody else in the whole world is that these people are crazy enough to just follow the Lamb wherever he goes. If he leads them through a difficult place, they just keep going. If he says obey and they don't know why, they just obey. They follow the lamb wherever it goes. Compared to all those other people described in Revelation 13 who follow the beast wherever it goes. Remember, and all the world wandered after the beast? You should say almost all the world. But there is some group of people who instead of following the beast, follow the lamb wherever he goes. The set, the set apart things, they have his name, his character in their forehead. They do whatever it is he asks. They go wherever it is he goes. And you can imagine, here's the lamb walking. There's a little trail. People, just wherever he goes, they follow. He can trust that they're going to go wherever he leads. It's a beautiful picture. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and the lamb. And notice this in verse 5. And in their mouth was found no What? Deceit. Some, now, some versions say guile, right? It's, 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 a, it's a, a sour, awful thing. This one says, no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, I think that's an interesting play on words because 
What was it that, look at just flip over the previous page in Revelation chapter 13. Again, Revelation 14 is God's response to Satan's activities in Revelation 13. Revelation chapter 13, you recall that beast from the earth? Okay, lie, that's a good one. No deceit. Now, now watch this now. After he sees another beast coming up out of the earth, notice what it says he does. Verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. Verse 14, and he what? Deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. So the beast from the earth that they've just read about deceives the whole world into making an image to this beast, to worshiping the beast. Where in counteracting that, God raises up a people who follow the lamb wherever he goes instead of following the beast, and in their mouth is no deceit, and and so they're not lying, they're telling the truth about the true God, and they're going to lead people to worship him instead of the Antichrist. This is a play between the followers of Jesus Christ and the followers of the Antichrist. It sets this up. So that's what we have in Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. We have the followers of the lamb versus the followers of the beast. Now, they apparently are not just quietly following behind the lamb, just, you know, I guess it's a bad plan word, sheepishly going, wherever, you know, they're not just quiet and demure and kind of hidden away and just kind of scrunching up and hoping everything will be fine and closing their eyes till they get to the end. Apparently, God's followers at this point have a mission to accomplish in this world. They have a message to give to the world. If you recall in Revelation 13, the, the, they're trying to deceive the whole world, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people into worshiping the Antichrist, right? So God raises up a people who have no lie in their mouths, no deceit. They're pure and they give a message of truth to lead people to worship the true Christ, Jesus Christ. Fascinating. And this is what we see in that first angel's message, starting with Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And again, notice the language parallel to Revelation chapter 13. Again, verse 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth. Now in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, the everlasting gospel is going to be preached to those who dwell on the earth. So one group is going to deceive people into false worship. The other one is supposed to truth people into true worship. I don't know if you can truth someone, but you know what I'm saying. One proclaims a falsehood, the other proclaims a truth. One is trying to set up a counterfeit worship. One articulates the need for genuine worship. Preaching the everlasting gospel to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Saying with a loud voice. This should tell us something about our personal witness, by the way. It's supposed to be active and not passive. Okay? I'll let that settle in for a second. I'll say it again if we need to. I'm not looking for amends. I just want you to think about it. Our witness to the world should be more than merely existing as a good example. At some point, the followers of God actually open their mouths and say something with a loud voice. They have a message to give to the world. Okay? Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to Him. 
versus fear the beast and give glory to him, right? You've been hearing for a lot of time, all the beast, all the world wanders after the beast, and look at the beast, oh, who can make war? I'm telling you, fear God and give glory to him for this particular reason. For the hour of his judgment, what? Has come. For the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. We're going to break this down a little bit. But basically, the first thing it says here, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. The everlasting gospel. It doesn't say an gospel or a new gospel or a... It calls it the what kind of gospel? The everlasting. Notice it's, it's a definitive the gospel. And it's not just like the New Testament gospel. It's the only gospel, the everlasting one, right? The same gospel that was articulated in Genesis 3.15 as going to be culminated when Jesus comes again, and all points in between is simply one gospel. There is one gospel message. There's not a new end-time message. There wasn't a gospel for the Jews and a gospel for them and a gospel. There's one gospel, and it's Jesus Christ and him alone. Watch this now. Let's go to, let's go to the book of Galatians. Let me demonstrate this. Galatians chapter 1. Again, our home base is Revelation 14. Let's go to Galatians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul speaks about his presentation of the gospel. And he makes it beyond possibility of confusion about there only being one gospel. Galatians chapter 1, starting with verse 6, apparently the people in Galatia had some issues and were being or wandering off into some side things that they shouldn't have been doing. And he calls them to task for it. And he says in verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And then he says in verse 7, which is not another. It's not as though there's, oh, this is gospel A and equally valid gospel B. No. There's the gospel and anything else is not the gospel, right? To a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So apparently there's the gospel of Christ and anything else is a perversion of the gospel of Christ. So there's not several equally valid options. There's the gospel, and then there's the perverted false gospel. Okay? The gospel of Christ. But then he goes on in verse 8. But even if we, he's like, if I lose my mind and start preaching something different, disregard me. (laughs) It takes a lot for a preacher to say, hey, don't listen to me. I'm wrong. (laughs) But Paul is saying, if I were to present something different than the gospel, don't even listen to me. But even if we or an angel from heaven, ooh. Now, let me ask you a question. Just pause right here. Do you ever think you'd have the spiritual guts to turn down an angel with a message? Is it possible that Satan can masquerade as an angel of light? Does the scripture specifically say that very thing? Yes. Jesus had to face that, did he not, in the wilderness? Oh, I've come down. There's a new message. It's okay. Now you can. And how did Christ combat it? It is what? Written. I don't care what I see, what I hear, what I feel, what I taste, what I touch, what I smell. Nothing. Everything must pass the litmus test of it is written. 
And Paul says, even if I preach something different than what is given in this word, if an angel from heaven comes down and says, I got a new gospel, don't listen to the angel. Bottom line, rock-solid foundation. Paul is patently clear. But even if we, verse 8, or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached, let him be accursed. And he repeats himself. You know, apparently they didn't have bolding and underlying and italics or like you couldn't draw circles and highlight it. So he's like, let me just say it twice. Verse 9. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Friends, when we get to the end of time and there's the everlasting gospel, it is the singular gospel that is rooted in Jesus Christ alone. One gospel. Revelation chapter 13, of course, right next to Revelation 14. Look at verses 7 and 8. When it talks about that first beast, the beast from the sea, it says, It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And every authority was given, and authority was given over to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, and it starts to talk about the Lamb, and it uses this language, slain from when? The foundation of the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ as our slain sacrificial Lamb is not an end-time device, and it wasn't just established at his cross. Apparently, it was from the very foundations of the world. So all the way back to Genesis and all the way to the end of Revelation, the Bible gives the single gospel. Thus it calls it the everlasting gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Now, watch this. Go back to Revelation 14, verse 7 now. After it says that these people will open their mouths and say with a loud voice this everlasting gospel, notice what it says here, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Now, let me tell you something, friends. In most of the Christian world, the idea of preaching the gospel and judgment together is crazy. Right? That the gospel is what gets us out of having to deal with a judgment. Or that the judgment occurred at the cross, Jesus took the penalty on himself, and now all we have is the gospel. There's no more worry about judgment to come. Except the only problem with that theory, as nice as it sounds, is it's not true. And it's not biblical. That apparently the gospel presentation that we give must include the judgment message. Okay? Now let me, let me explain. This is not just, oh, we see it just right here. Let me show you this is also in the scripture as well. Go to John chapter 16. Jesus himself as he's coming to the end of his ministry and knew that he was going to be soon taken from his disciples, prayed to the Father that he, they would receive the Holy Spirit in his place as his representative, as his vicar on earth, if you want to say that. And notice specifically what he says this Spirit would do. We're in John chapter 16, and we're going to go to verses 7 and 8. John 16 7 and 8, as Jesus is looking forward to his departure from his disciples, he says these words. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. 
which is nice. I don't know why Jesus has to preface that all the time. I don't know if people suspected him of lying, but apparently Jesus tells the truth just like Christ's followers would tell the truth. And he says, I'm telling you the truth here. It is to your advantage that I do what? Go away. It's going to be better for you in the long run if I leave. Now, that's a weird message to hear, but he said, look, trust me, it's true. You almost get the idea. He had to tell him it's true before he told him what the thing was, because if he just told him what the thing was, they wouldn't believe it's true. He said, look, I'm telling you the truth. It's better for you if I go away. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Who is the helper he's referring to? The Holy Spirit. Thank you very much. Now, watch this. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of what? Judgment. Apparently, after Jesus leaves, his representative will fuel a movement that articulates righteousness and judgment to come. Let's see this put into practice. Go to the book of Acts, chapter 24. Just turn to the, to the right, one book. Acts chapter 24, long after Christ had left the world and the Holy Spirit had been sent as his representative, the Apostle Paul now has an opportunity, in fact is commanded, to present the gospel before this great tribunal, before these, well, before these people who are holding him hostage. Acts chapter 24 Verses 24 and 25. Chapter 24, starting with verse 24. The book of Acts, starting with chapter 24, verse 24. It reads, After some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. So he calls Paul and basically says, All right, I'm going to listen to your gospel presentation. Tell me about faith in Christ. So that's what he was tasked with doing. Verse 25, what did he actually say? Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and what? The judgment to come. Apparently, in his presentation about faith in Christ, he included judgment to come. From Paul's perspective, the cross had already occurred years before, correct? But he's still presenting faith in Jesus including a judgment still to come. Okay, So when Paul preached the gospel, it included the truth about a judgment to come. So it should not surprise us at all when we go to Revelation chapter 14 and we hear that there are some people preaching the everlasting gospel, saying, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. The fact that it includes it combines the gospel and the judgment into one message shouldn't be confusing. What's unique about this is not the addition of the judgment. What's unique about the, what's the difference between what we see in Revelation 14 and what we saw in Acts 24? The only difference, it's the same faith, it's the same gospel, the same Jesus, the same judgment. But what's the difference? From Paul's perspective, it was a judgment what? To come. But now, at this point in earth's history, they're preaching the everlasting gospel, saying, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. They are preaching the everlasting gospel in the chronological context of 
the beginning of the day of judgment. Okay, that God's judgment now has begun, and so they're living, not looking forward to this, but they're experiencing it right then and there. Just prior to the return of Jesus Christ, his judgment, which we call the pre-advent judgment, right, begins in the courts of heaven, and there's a messenger group of people who are proclaiming with a loud voice that still the same gospel, but now we're living in the hour that his judgment has come. So what do you do? By the way, wouldn't that be a terrible way to end the first angel's message? <laughs> Fear God. Give glory to him. Why? For the hour of his judgment has come. What do we do about it? I don't know. <laughs> wouldn't that be awful? But it doesn't. It gives some practical counsel. What do we do about this? And worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Fascinatingly enough, in Revelation 13 and 14, which these two go hand in glove together, eight different times you see a call to worship. Worship, worship, him who worships, worships, worship. Seven out of the eight of those times the word worship is mentioned, it's in the context of people worshiping the beast. But one time, God speaks out with a clarion call loud to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And instead of worshiping the beast, he has people worship the true God. Worship him. And how do you know the true God versus a false God? He's the one who created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now, as we've said repeatedly in the series, the book of Revelation is at the end of the Bible on purpose because it employs lots of other things from previous parts of the Bible in its writing. You'll see, but you'll see hints and allusions. You'll hear names dropped. You'll hear like Sodom. You'll hear Babylon. You'll hear Jezebel, Jerusalem, Zion. All of these things that have occurred previously in history, in, recorded in Scripture, are now used and alluded to in the book of Revelation. Over and over, hundreds of them. However, with all of those many, many, many references to things earlier in Scripture, nowhere in the book of Revelation do you have an entire passage from the Old Testament just dropped into the book of Revelation. Nowhere do they copy and paste or cut and paste into the book. Okay, So you have lots and lots of little hints and allusions and name drops and all this kind of stuff from the previous books. So, for instance, when you just hear the one word Jezebel, your mind automatically goes back to, ah, I remember in Old Testament history that this happened. You know, your mind goes back to that story. It just puts a pin in it, right? But it nowhere takes an entire passage and just kind of like copies it and sticks it in the book of Revelation. The closest thing to using an entire passage of the Old Testament inside the book of Revelation happens right here in Revelation chapter 14, specifically in verse 7. It's right there where it says that part about worship him. What do we do about the fact that we're hearing the gospel in the time of the judgment? We worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. That cadence, the heavens, the earth, and the sea should bring back, if you're even superficially aware of Scripture at all. Heavens and the earth and the sea should take you back to one passage of Scripture. It's the book of Exodus, chapter 20, 
And specifically, verse 11. Exodus chapter 20, specifically verse 11. Now again, if you know much about the Bible at all, you're probably familiar with the fact that Exodus chapter 20 is where is recorded God's Ten Commandment law. Okay? So of all the passages it could lift from the entire Old Testament, it lifts a portion of the Ten Commandments, which is interesting. But not just the prelude to the Ten Commandments, but one specific part of the Ten Commandments. The very middle, the very heart of the Ten Commandments, that fourth commandment that begins in verse 8 with the words, remember what? The Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, I think it's fascinating. We, we always talk about how there's the one commandment that begins with the word remember is the one the world seems to have forgotten. Right? It's not coincidental that the one thing God says remember, everybody else just happens to forget. Is it possible that, as we just saw in Revelation chapter 13, that there's an image to the beast set up that would honor the beast instead of honoring the lamb? And it causes all to worship and worship and worship. And yet the one reference from the Old Testament that's nearest a complete lifting from the Old Testament into the book of Revelation comes directly from the fourth commandment, which is God's commandment about worship. And it says, remember the Sabbath day to do what? To keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Isn't it fantastic that when we get to this message of the judgment hours begun and we ask, what do we do about it? The answer is, worship God who created, and the way the Creator asked to be worshipped is to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the Sabbath, seventh day is the Sabbath. Notice definitive, just like the gospel. It didn't just say take a Sabbath day, it says the Sabbath day. Remember the seventh day, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your strangers within thy gates. And now it goes to the punchline in verse 11, which is where Revelation 14's language comes from. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Of all the portions of Scripture it could take and put into the first angel's message, announcing the judgment hour of God's gospel. They chose this particular passage as part of the message that would be heard at the end of time. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him. May the heaven and the earth, the sea, and springs of water. Which, by the way, let me take a pause on this. People will say, aha, there's the crux of the three angels' messages. Keep Saturday as the Sabbath. Yes, Saturday is the Sabbath. It is the seventh day of the week, and anything else is not the Sabbath. That's clear. Having said that, please understand that there's more involved than merely the correct day on the calendar when we talk about Sabbath versus, say, Sunday, just to pick a day. The reason that we keep the seventh day Sabbath is not because that seventh day is inherently better than the other days, right? For instance, in its own nature, the seventh day is not, say, longer than the other days. 
you wouldn't look at it and be like, you know what, I've never understood anything, but obviously this one day is better than all the other ones. It's not like, and trust me, living in Michigan, you know, the seventh day does not provide better weather. Right? Wouldn't it be glorious if every seventh day just all of a sudden, ah, 75 and sunny. But clearly that's not the case, right? It's not because there's any astronomical or meteorological, it's not that there's any chronological, any kind of reasoning that we can come up with why the seventh day should be the Sabbath. The only reason we keep the seventh day Sabbath is because we want to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And if he says to keep the seven-day Sabbath, even if the whole world is doing something different, what do we do? We keep the seven-day Sabbath. Not because the day is better than the other days or because, oh, we got it right and you got it wrong. The issue is not about that. The issue is simply loyalty to the God who loves you. He's our creator, and we respect him as such by doing what he asks. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Jesus himself said it so simply. If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. If you love the Lord and you respond to that everlasting gospel, he says, look, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. By the way, it's fascinating to me that creation would be put here. For most of the Christian history, that same 2,000-year span, you know, from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, for the vast majority of that time, the world, or at least the Christianized world, the Western world, implicitly trusted that creation happened the way the Bible said it happened. That in six days, the Lord God created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the elements, and he rested on the Sabbath. But something has shifted in our society, have you noticed? that most people don't believe in creation anymore. Now, how did that idea get in there? How did we get away from an implicit trust because the Word of God says that we created, so we trust it, to the place where we are now, that if you say, I believe in a creation, you're ridiculed as an idiot? Can we use those kind of languages? I mean, it's it's true, right? So, and of course, the seventh day is simply a memorial of a creation, a creation that the rest of the world says didn't even happen. So why would you keep a day honoring a thing that didn't ever exist? Now, it's fascinating to me. Of course, you could probably tell me, who is the person that made this theory of evolution so wildly popular? Charles Darwin, yes? His book called The Origins, or On the Origin of Species, was published in 1859. However, it was simply an expanded version of a paper that he had written in 1844. So right at the same time, the hour of God's judgment has begun. And people are saying, worship the creator God, not this other false Christ, but the true Christ, worship him who made, which by the way, which member of the God had made the heavens, the earth, the sea? Jesus Christ, was it not? He's the creator of all things. All things exist by him. But there's apparently, while the clarion call of worship Jesus Christ as your creator is going out to the whole world, The whole world is being influenced by a concept starting at the exact same time that says there was no creation at all. It doesn't matter. In fact, you're ridiculous if you believe in it. Which, if there's no creation, what's the point of remembering a seventh day that honors that creation? So it's fascinating to me that we happen to be living at this time in Earth's history where Satan has been working 
for decades and decades, for, for centuries and, and longer, to pry people off of a true allegiance to God with deception, with persecution, yet at the final moments of earth's history, there will be a group of people who stand up and say, present the everlasting gospel in the time of the hour of his judgment has begun and calling people back to the word of God because it is written, God created and remember the Sabbath day as a memorial to that creation. What we're talking about, friends, when we talk about Sabbath-keeping is nothing to do with legalism, but it's everything to do with loyalty to our Creator and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. The final crisis will come, friends, and it's not because, oh, Sabbath and Sunday is such a tough issue. It's because God says so that Satan controverts it so much. The only reason we keep the seventh-day Sabbath is because he said so. And that just old-fashioned, bald-faced loyalty to God infuriates Satan. And he's doing everything he can in his power. But I don't know about you, but I want to be faithful to God and not just be faithful, I want to be useful in his cause. I want to open my mouth and say the message we've been entrusted with at this time in Earth's history. And the first movement of that message, the first angel's message, is a call to remember God as our creator, and to honor him as such by keeping the seventh day holy, which he's called us to do. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.